Morning, everybody. I'm Carrie. Very grateful member of Al-Anon Family Groups. Whew. Y'all look good. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I got my uh, name tag, and I did meet many of the ladies here in Williams, and my name tag says I'm from Williams. The program says I'm from Glendale. I actually live in Phoenix, but I grew up in Mississippi, so I'm just here, okay? <laughs> I'd like to uh, thank the committee for asking me to come. Is this too loud, or are, you, are we good? I'm, it's always an honor to be asked to share my recovery in the Al-Anon family groups. My heart's just pounding. I'm nervous. That always happens. That's a good thing. It'll, it'll slow down in a few minutes. One time I said that from the podium, and I said, I hope it stops. And a lady in the front row said, I hope your heart will stop. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, I need to think about what I'm saying. Anyways, I'm glad to be here today, uh, and, and I'm grateful to have been asked. Are there any people, in, uh, any new people to Al-Anon or AA here this morning in your first year? If you are, could you raise your hand? Welcome. I'd like to welcome you to, to the meeting this morning and, and welcome you to 12 Steps and, and hope that you find something here that I found that saved my life, that's given me a new life. I was dying when I got here and I didn't even know it. So I hope that you will find a step on your journey here today. We're taught that we drink water when we have cotton mouth, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't take myself too seriously today, and I sure did when I got here. I was almost dying from being too serious. Uh, so hopefully we'll have some fun this morning. We talked to share in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And if I'm going to talk for 40, 45 minutes, it'd probably be a little more than general in some spots, but basically that's what I want to do. Um, I have to start by letting him adjust this thing so it records properly. Oh, wow. You want me to really be up there? Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't raised in a home that had, act, had active alcoholism in it. I was raised on a 500-acre cotton and soybean farm and outside, like seven miles outside of this little town called Sledge, Mississippi. And Sledge is literally a dot on the map. It's where Charlie Pride grew up, and that might not mean a thing to many of you here, but he was a big country singer. And uh, so we live way out in the country. We didn't even have a telephone in our com- community till I was like 12 years old. I think they finally paved the roads when I was like 10. So uh, the reason that I tell that is because we were really cut off from any information coming in or going out of where we lived. And while I didn't live with active alcoholism, there was alcoholism in my family. I did not know that. I found that out once I got into program, and y'all taught me about alcoholism. Um, I just knew that I grew up on a farm and I could hunt and fish and shoot guns and chew tobacco and do all that cool stuff, you know. Uh, I was a firstborn, and my father wanted a son, and, and I wasn't, but he raised me like one, and I'm forever grateful for having learned, you know, how to grow up on a farm and fix things and figure things out and hunt and fish and just, you know, be out on the land and feel close to nature. My grandmother was the matriarch of our family. What I know today is that she was a, a classic Al-Anon. She was raised by alcoholics, and she was probably a poster child for someone should have had, who should have had Al-Anon. Um, but she was a matriarch, and she ran everything in our family, all of us. And, and we had a family farm, so we were all working all the time. And my father never really – he was the baby. There was three kids, and he never really cut the emotional umbilical cord for my grandmother. So it was always like – my grandmother was – probably not by her own design, sometimes in the middle of everything. And so uh, when, my, when I was seven years old, my parents divorced. And I look back now, and I think it's because my mom, my dad, and my grandmother was one too many people in that marriage, you know. And so <laughs> my, mom, my mom moved back home to her where her mother lived. And 
My father got custody of us, which is sometimes unusual, but we had a lot of land and he was seen as, excuse me, an upstanding citizen in our county. So, uh, and I also found out that he said some things in the custody battle that weren't true to get custody of us. I got a lot of conflicting messages growing up. I always thought that my father was this big, you know, very man, man of integrity and stuff. And I think to the degree that he could, he was, but he was affected by alcoholism too. And sometimes I think he did things he had to do to get what he wanted or felt he had to do. At any rate, my father remarried pretty quickly. I thought it was a couple years. I was told it was like two weeks. <laughs> well, I don't think the people in my family know how to be alone. And he had two kids to raise. And um, so he remarried this gal that we thought was a city girl because she was from, you know, what we consider a big town. Maybe it was big as Flagstaff. I don't know. But um, she couldn't cook cornbread very well at first. And we didn't like that. (laughs) But she learned. And and we didn't get on very good. And and I don't need to get into a lot of great detail about that. But I think my father kind of said some things that, that had her feel at odds with me because he was very much about his children. And what I did not know until I had been in Al-Anon for quite some time is that a lot of this stuff is hindsight that I've learned through working inventories and through working the steps, is that she was raised by a violent alcoholic father, and she was in charge of taking care of her siblings. And when he would come home at night, if she hadn't done something right, he would beat her and put her in the closet. Well, when she married my father, she she found someone that could be loving to her. And I think anything that she thought was a threat to that, she didn't want to have, and she saw me as a threat to my father's love. So we were at odds pretty quickly. She wanted a little girl. I'm hunting, fishing, chewing tobacco at seven years old. I don't want frills, you know. I just It's not part of my nature, you know. And my grandmother was not a real huggy-feely, frilly type lady either. So, I mean, you know, it, it, I came by it righteously. And so we were at odds a lot. Uh, not too long after they'd been married, she began to be emotionally abusive and I would never have put that word to it at that time I thought that we just didn't get along well things escalated after a time and she began to be violent with me physical and she would say to me if you tell your father when he leaves it's going to be worse I'm like 10 years old there's no reason for me to think that it's not true and so I learned to keep secrets and I learned to put on a face and a mask that you looked at and you saw that everything was okay. You saw a little 12-year-old girl that was great at softball, that made straight A's, that everything was fine, that was hunting and fishing and was happy. And that's not at all what I was on the inside. I was terrified. Um, my father, I don't know if he knew about these things. I think in a way that he was there physically, but emotionally he wasn't very supportive. Maybe he didn't want to see. I don't know. All I can tell you is that this is my perception of what happened. And what I share here today is not the opinion of Al-Anon. It's my personal opinion about the steps, the program, everything. If if you don't like what I say, it's okay. And I hope if you really don't like it, you'll talk to your sponsor about it and let them help you work it out. (laughs) I've had to do that on more than one occasion. And it's helped me grow. Uh, So, anyways, my uh, stepmother had a, a son that was a little bit older than me. And, you know, we just grew up, did things that you do out in the country. You do a lot of hunting and fishing and playing ball and drinking. And uh, we had the family car one weekend, and I was 12 years old. And uh, me and my brothers went out and uh, took some people with us that lived near us. And I kind of liked this little boy that I wasn't supposed to. He worked on our farm, and my father didn't want me associating with him. And uh, we went out that night, and to show you how distorted. I say that I have a disease of perception. 
because of how alcoholism has affected me. I think the family disease, it, it's, it's one disease and it affects us differently. I'm not that different from the drinker. I don't have a physical allergy to alcohol, but my behaviors are very similar to a drinker if you would look at any given time or at some given times. <laughs> a lot. And so, you know, we were going out one night and uh, I, I, I lost my virginity this night. And on the way home, my stepbrother raped me. Well, my distorted perception was at that age, I didn't know what was worse, what he had done or the trouble I was going to be in if he told on me for what I did earlier in the night. So what did I do? Shut it down, put it in a compartment, set it off, kept a secret. So for the next two years, I manipulated and controlled situations to not be in the same room by myself with, with my stepbrother because I was afraid that the same thing would happen again. And at 12 and 13 years old, I would lay awake till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. If I didn't go to sleep before my parents did, I would lay awake half the night, terrified that that was going to happen. And it didn't. But I learned. I, I lived in fear constantly. Yet I didn't let you know it. I couldn't tell anyone. I was so afraid. So probably when I was about 15, uh, my controlling and manipulating failed on me one time. My stepmother made me go somewhere with my stepbrother to take some people somewhere and on the way home that night it happened again and that night I told I told my father and he believed me and for 24 hours there was uh, sympathy there was encouragement there was acknowledgement and after that we shut the door on it we swept it under the rug and we went on about our lives and you know for 24 hours I had validation for at least that long so it was like I knew they knew but I also knew that we didn't I don't think I was conscious of the fact that we didn't have tools to deal with it, but I just went on about my life. Well, it got worse with my stepmother after that, and when I was 15, my grandfather, who lived next door to us, he died. Uh, actually, we ran across the pea patch that morning when the phone rang, and, and I watched. I held my grandfather in, in my arms, and I watched life pass through him. And, for you know, that was a pretty poignant moment in my life. And I couldn't cry about it because I was so trying to be strong for the family because that's just you just didn't show your emotion. You didn't cry. You barely could be angry. And I certainly didn't know to have anger displayed was not something that I, I didn't want that at all because I only saw very inappropriate anger. And so uh, a couple weeks later, I went... I went squirrel hunting where I had been squirrel hunting last with my grandfather, and I was able to just, like, really let myself go and have a lot of emotion. And uh, so I, I went to college, kind of unevent. Oh, my father let me move in with my grandmother as a result of that. I knew there was a reason for me telling you that. Uh, <laughs> I moved in with my grandmother, and then it was things were good because no one could bother me then. My grandmother, while she wasn't really touchy-feely, no one could touch me, you know, and so that was really good. I loved living with her. And uh, I got it. Again, my distorted thinking comes into play here. I wanted to have a softball scholarship to college because I love playing softball and I wanted to be, you know, great. And so I went and looking for a softball scholarship, but they didn't offer very good softball scholarships. So I resorted to a fully renewable four-year academic scholarship that paid for tuition, books, room, board, everything. And I thought that was less exciting than a softball scholarship. <laughs> my perception leaves a lot to be desired, okay? <laughs> so I went to college, and uh, here's where I normally say I got into a relationship within a month of being in college. I could save us all about 15 or 20 minutes and tell you that I was essentially in the same relationship for the next 10 years, but the faces just kept getting different, you know? <laughs> I would not have told you that that relationship, by the way, uh, was with a woman. I had a difficulty with that. I didn't know 
some things about myself, <laughs> clearly, until I got out <laughs> to college because we lived so far out there weren't names for those kinds of things. I just thought I was different, you know. <laughs> Except for the fact that when I was 12 years old, I really I probably will never understand the history of this. I know some of it. My father sat me down and said, Carrie, there are three things that you can do that I will disown you for. Steal, love a black, or love a woman. Now, I like to joke and say that my first girlfriend was black and I sold her, but that's not the truth. So, <laughs> my, my first sponsor was black, but I don't know if that matters. Um, anyways, uh, I, and you know what? The, I'll tell you a little bit later on. He held true to that. But uh, I went to college, got in a relationship, and was in that relationship for two years. Would not have told you that that person was abusing alcohol or drugs. But in like, I had been in program like about 10 years when it occurred to me, God, denial is so powerful, I swear, even when you're working this thing sometimes. I was like, wow, she drank all the time. She she smoked a lot of pot. I, I broke up with her and then got back with her because I felt like she was drinking too much and I wanted to help her not get in trouble. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, you know? I'll just keep coming back, okay? <laughs> Anyways, I was in that relationship for two years, got into another relationship, and um, this was my senior year of college. Um, right before I started my senior year, my, my father and stepmother and two brothers had moved to Dallas quite a while back. They were, my father was driving truck cross country then because they'd lost the farm to years of drought and, and flood. And I called my father and I said, how's it going? He goes, oh, okay. And I know that meant like something tragically wrong. Seriously, right? And so my stepmother was very sick. She had been to the doctor. We don't know how to say how we feel in our family. And so... He was in between jobs. She had gone to the doctor, and long story short, she was they didn't know it at the moment, but she was eaten up with cancer internally. They wouldn't even open her up. So he had no insurance because he was in between jobs. So he brought her home to my grandmother's in, in Oxford, Mississippi, to have her nursed to death. And so I would drive up two hours each, you know, every other weekend. I would go two hours and be there with my grandmother. And I watched, I didn't have any tools for living at this point, but I can tell you to watch someone go from a very large large in many terms, ways of speaking that, to like going down to 100 pounds, not knowing where she was. To watch that happen over like six months before she died was very incredible. And I didn't have any resentment in my heart when I watched her suffer like that. And I would go there sometimes and they would say she hadn't recognized anybody for three or four days. And I'd walk in, she'd be like, Carrie, how are you? Freak me out, you know, but... Uh, I'm grateful to have been able to be present for that just because I think I did, I'm so grateful not to have so much hatred in my heart for the years that it took me prior to getting the program. So I graduated college. My partner was going to go to L.A. to pursue an acting career. My stepmother died, and two weeks later, my mother's mother died. I wasn't really close to her, but I was getting ready to go to medical school. Something in my mind just said, you can't do this. Because you can't just go to medical school. You've got to be the best brain surgeon in the world. That's going to take you way too many years and just don't do anything right now. So I did a geographic. God, I'm a good Al-Anon, right? <laughs> and so I wound, I wound up going to California with my partner. My family thought I was, like, completely off my rocker, and they probably were right. I mean, I, I'd never been west of Dallas, Texas, and I'm driving my little brown Pinto across country, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Beverly Hills comes to L.A., you know, when I come out here. <laughs> My accent was so thick, people didn't even know what I was saying, you know. And, and they, oh, God, they made fun of me. It, it was pitiful, <laughs> just pitiful. And hurt my feelings, you know. I mean, really hurt my feelings because I was Southern hospitality thing, and they were mean. And anyways, uh, they're not nice sometimes out there. But um, went to L.A., um, 
did what I do. I don't have tools for communication. I don't know how to be healthy. I don't know how to be a person in and of my own right, my, an individual being. And uh, in about a month, I, I, like, I realized I wasn't happy. So I came home one day and I told my girlfriend that I didn't want to be in that relationship with her, that I had found somebody else that I wanted to date and she needed to move. And I thought that I was, you know, acting out of integrity because I didn't like, I wasn't unfaithful. I came home and told her, you know. Well, bludgeoning people with the truth didn't mean much to me at that point. I've learned. I got in another couple of relationships. Found myself in a relationship with someone who drank and, and partied a lot and did a lot of cocaine. And the drinking didn't bother me, but at a certain point the cocaine had to go. So I told her she needed to quit. And I thought she would. Huh. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anything about drinking and, and alcoholism and the disease and craving and compulsion. And, and I didn't know about any of that. And so it didn't stop, as you can imagine. And I left in big dramatic flair. You know, uh, alcoholics are not the only dramatic ones. I'm just as dramatic, only I don't want to, I don't want you to think that I am. That's the thing. That's the difference. I want it to happen, but be behind the scenes. And so... So a series of events of trying to find out all the lies that I'm certain I had been told in that relationship and because I couldn't let go of all the drama, even though I wasn't in it anymore, I met a person who was sober two years, excuse me, in A&A. Yeah, it's AA, but I didn't know. Triple A, double A, I didn't know. <laughs> I knew what triple A was because I moved to Los Angeles and they had that there then. But uh, So I meet this gal and she's been sober, they tell me, in two years in, in AA, and I thought she was kind of sullen and moody and i won't use the b word that i thought that she was because we're being taped but and and so does don't you know that the next time i met her i fell in love with her right and so it's exactly what happened because i love alcoholics i don't know about any of you alanons i love alcoholics you could put me in a room full of 100 people and if there was one person one alcoholic in there i would find them in 30 seconds like a heat-seeking missile because that's what i do they're they're just magnetic they're charismatic and i'm coming right for you buddy you know i mean that's just how it's going to happen and uh Alcoholics are awesome people. They are. They're the they're the life of the party, you know. And uh, that's where I want to be next to you. I don't want to be that person, but I want to be next to that person. And so we went out on a date and we got married because I don't know about what you heterosexuals do, but that's a lot of what uh, homosexuals do. And so they, there's a joke about a U-Haul coming, you know. And so uh, and also think about how I was raised. My father got married two weeks later, you know, after his wife had died. So I just kind of the modeling. I didn't even really know what stereotypes were going on. I just knew that uh, we were together now. And I went to a lot of AA meetings with her, a lot of open AA meetings, because she had a problem and I wanted to help. That's what I do. I help. I help. And uh, so we would go. And I have to tell you, they said this God word. They would read these steps and they would talk about God. And I had a little flinch that would start to happen with me because I was raised Southern Baptist. And, you know, no, in Southern Baptist religion is fine. But my perception of some of the things that I learned tore me up around the whole God thing. And uh, but I, I like that. And meetings were so fun. They smoked, they cussed, they drank coffee. It was like a bar with no alcohol. You know, <laughs> who wouldn't want to be there? And uh, so we would go to a lot of 10 p.m. candlelight meetings, you know, and it was a lot of fun. And so that was my first introduction to AA. And uh, at one point, her sponsor mentioned to her that maybe I should go to Al-Anon. And uh, I'm like, well, I don't know. We'll see. Well, it wasn't too long for us being together that life was about to catch up with us because we were just like two little broken kids who didn't have tools. And uh, she had a problem with anger and I had a problem saying no. So she'd get mad, and I'd just give her a credit card, and, like, she'd go spend $2,000, and I'd be like, ooh, that really wasn't what I had in mind. But, uh, you know, I started, like, doing things that I really shouldn't be doing. 
in that regard. I remember, we, this is funny, i got to tell you, so you know how crazy I was. We, were, we weren't even really, well, we were living together because it was after our first date, but we, we, were, <laughs> we were driving around somewhere, and she lived in Pasadena, and I opened her glove box of her car, and there were, I'm not kidding you, I swear to God, I counted, and there were 101 parking tickets because she didn't have a decal. I went and took out a loan for my credit union and paid $1,000 worth of parking tickets. I'm not kidding you. So I earned my seat in this program. Nobody can take it from me. I earned it. <laughs> so anyways, uh, we, it got nuts. And we, we shared an apartment with an, another gal who was in AA who, who also had some issues. And uh, it just, you know, we would get into fights. And I would find that I did what I did when I was a kid, which was I never hit back. I learned when I was a kid, if you just don't... Uh, if you're passive, that it ends quicker. And so when we would get into fights, I would just not do anything and it would end faster. And then we would apologize. And I would apologize because I'm certain that I did something to start it. You know, I mean, it was very, very sick. And uh, we were very intertwined. And, and, uh, and I want to tell you, this is what our house looked like. This is a sober household. Okay, nobody's drinking in our house. And this is the thing about it. Even in recovery, we can still be very sick in our relationships. Even if we're trying. I wasn't in program at this time, but I still lived in this house. And even when I was in program, some of the things that happened were like I'd come home on a Friday and our, our other roommate would be laying there. She tried to cut herself periodically to try to kill herself. And so I would check and make sure she wasn't bleeding too bad before I went back there and we start raising cane before we all went to the eight o'clock AA meeting, you know. <laughs> I mean, and those kinds of things still happen. And if that's happening for you, any kind of that kind of insanity, I want to tell you it doesn't have to be that way today. There is a solution. There is a way out. We have a program of recovery. You don't have to live like that anymore if you choose not to. So what happened? Well, I was about 24 years old. We've been together, I don't know, maybe a year. It seems like 10 years of my life. I kid you not. There was so much drama. It got so bad that I was kicked out of a car at 30 miles an hour. She busted my windshield. She busted my eardrum. I mean, just all kind of insanity. And I participated in it. This person wasn't the only one there. I was signing up for it. I'm not saying that I wasn't because I was. I, I decided to go home. I hadn't been out at this time. I, I went. I did go to a meeting. I walked in an Al-Anon meeting, the chairs were in a circle, and they were sitting in the center of the room, and people had Kleenexes, and they were talking about their feelings, and they were crying. I'm like, oh, heck no, I don't want to be here, you know. <laughs> At the break, I'm going upstairs where they're laughing and drinking coffee and cussing, okay? <laughs> and, so, and that's an exaggeration. I'm sure they weren't cussing all the time, but it seemed like it to me because it was fun, you know. It was just a lot of fun. And so I went back up there, and I'm like, I don't want to go there. And she's like, don't worry about it. It's okay. And so, you know, she just kind of didn't tell her sponsor about that. And uh, the things, you know, I was listening to these listening. You can't sit in here and not get some of this stuff. You know what I mean? They were talking about rigorous honesty. They were talking about self-will. They were talking about a higher power, amends, and all these things that are in, in, that are in the steps, right? So I decided to go home. And about this time, I was getting this funny feeling that my partner, something was going on. And I thought she was having an affair with our mutual best friend. But I couldn't, no one was telling me. And that was driving me crazy because I knew in my guts that something was happening and no one would tell me the truth. And that's the kind of thing that made me crazy my whole life. I had a feeling and they said, no, you don't. I said, the sky is blue. They said, it's brown. What's wrong with you? You know? So I was going a little crazy over that. I go home and I've been living kind of this double life because I'm kind of recognizing there's some things about me that I didn't know, you know. And uh, so I don't have any courage at this point in my life. But somehow God helped me. And I told my new stepmother, oh, after my stepmother died of cancer, my father remarried immediately to the lady that had been the best friend of my stepmother. And uh, they're still married today, actually. And um, 
I told, I asked her, I said, what do you think daddy would do if he thought that I was gay? I couldn't even say that I was. I just said, what if I was, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I left to go get on a plane. By the time I hit the LA, he had left a 15 minute message on my answering machine saying, I told you when you were young, if this was the case that I, I would disown you and you're dead and you're buried and you don't exist and you're not part of our family. And I don't want to have anything to do with you unless you change your life. And it's over, and I'm sorry. I don't know what I did. I don't know where I went wrong, but that's it. And in that moment, coupled with the fact that a day or two later, I it was validated that my girlfriend was actually having an affair with our mutual best friend, that was when I hit the point of spiritual bankruptcy. You could have looked in my eyes that day, I'm certain, and you would have seen the lights were on, but no one was home. I've never in my life felt like I wanted to take my life, but I knew at that point that if I didn't get some help, that I was going to do something dramatic and something drastic. And our other roommate had gone through a treatment program for Alanonism, or that C word that we don't say in here much, codependency. Uh, <laughs> brown on that. And I was able, through my higher power's hand, to get in a 21-day treatment program and to have them show me I needed outside help. I did. Desperately, I needed outside help. And for the first time in my life, they said, you were abused. You need to say that word. Put the word rape to what happened to you. I couldn't. I couldn't put the words to the situations because it would make it real. And I didn't know how to deal with those kinds of things. I had no tools whatsoever. So I was in 21 days of inpatient. And it was, oh, my God, essentially, I like visuals because I'm Southern. and We like to tell stories. And so they, they like, uh, in essence, to me, they pulled all my emotional intestines out. One, all of them showed me what was on the floor out there when they put it all out. This is your life. And then they said, hold out your arms. Here, we're giving it all back to you. Now, you better go to Al-Anon, and you better find a way of living. And we suggest it's a 12-step way of life because we've given you some tools, but you've got to go learn how to practice them now. And that room that I went to where they had those Kleenex boxes, I went back to that room, and I wasn't so haughty when I came back this time. I was kind of crawling back in, and I said, I need help. You guys got to help me. You got to show me how to live. And I had been in open AA meetings long enough to here to go to 90 meetings in 90 days and get a sponsor and be of service. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I got a sponsor. I asked this lady to sponsor me. She had what I want. She had recovery, and she had a relationship with a recovering alcoholic. And I was in a relationship with a recovering alcoholic. So she had what I wanted, and I asked her to sponsor me. And she also had this light in her eye that I couldn't really explain. But I knew that I was drawn to it. And so... I took a service commitment. We started working the steps. And I will tell you that it took me quite a little while yet to get out of that relationship. Because it was like someone saying, oh, yeah, just stop shooting heroin, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, it wasn't going to happen that quickly. I mean, I was addicted to this person. She would walk in the room and my palms would start sweating and my heart would start to flutter. I mean, literally, I had a physical reaction to it. So I understand when they talk about a physical allergy to alcohol. It's just that my allergy was... It appeared differently, you know, and uh, so I couldn't leave. I just couldn't leave. And eventually God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And she got a job 70 something miles away. And I tried to drive out there, you know, in the middle of the night and I took, couldn't do it too long <laughs> and uh, and keep my job. I was lucky when I got out of that treatment program that I still had a job. And I would go, oh, my goodness, I don't know how I survived this. My job, I'm a scientist. I would go into a room that was like 12 by 12 and have four white walls and an instrument and me for eight hours. I would get up in the morning and I would cry all the way to work and I would make a deal with God that I had to not cry till noon and then I could cry through my whole lunch hour and then go to a meeting and I could cry at night. And I would call my sponsor and I would go to a meeting and I would do what she told me to do. 
And, and it just was hard. I was trying to pay. I'd run up all this debt. I didn't have money. And I was telling my sponsor one time, I think I had gotten the first part of the first step. And God was showing me the second part of the first step, <laughs> the unmanageability. And I called my sponsor up and I said, I don't know if I should get another job. I can't pay all my bills, you know. And she said, God will show you. God will show you. You just keep doing what you need to do. And it will become very apparent to you. I believe that's how God works, Carrie. He works for me that way. And I think he'll work for you that way. In the first several months, I had to pray to her God. Because I didn't have a concept of a God that worked. I still had an old idea of God that didn't work. That God was not friendly to me, the one that I thought about. But hers did. So I would get on my knees at night. Dear Stephanie's God. You know, and be on my knees. <laughs> she said it was okay to use her God, so I did. And it worked. It worked wonderfully, you know. Because she was so nice, you know, and sweet. And, and uh, I would call her. God bless that woman. I, would call, I don't know how she did it. Because I would call her, and we would have been in a fight. And she would say, are you physically safe? And I would say yes or no. And if I wasn't, she'd make me get that. Go call her back when I was, or I could talk to her. She never one time told me I needed to leave that relationship. And I'm so thankful for that. We don't give each other advice here. We don't tell each other what to do. Personally, I don't want that responsibility. If I tell you to do something and it's wrong, I don't want it, I don't want that. But we give each other direction for how to work the steps and how to get closer to a higher power, right? And so, um, I didn't know if I should have a job. I'm getting to a second step story is what's about to happen here. She would tell me to pray. And so every month I had, for 18 months, I was supposed to pay $316 a month to the treatment center. That's a bill that was way beyond what I could pay, but I would juggle my bills. And the third month I sent the check in, go to meetings, you know, trying to learn how to live. They were teaching me that like nabs and a can of Coke was not dinner. You know, I mean, I'm just really trying to get through here, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to the mailbox one day and I have this framed. There was a letter. Now, the insurance had, like, worked it all out. This is what I had to pay, right? I got a letter from the hospital that said, Miss Keller, your bill has been paid in full, and here is the last check that you sent to us. And in that moment, that was my miracle. That was some God up there saying, here, sister girl, we're going to throw you a bone because we know it's really hard, and I want you to know that I'm out here for you, you know. And um, I, I went to my knees that night, you know, like I do every, like I did every night. I don't necessarily pray on my knees every night, but I pray all the time. And uh, I began to believe that there was a higher power out there that loved me because that kind of thing did not happen in my life. It just did not happen in my life, you know. So somewhere in there, I, you know, she moved away or whatever, and I kept going to meetings. And, and my sponsor said when, when I got out of that relationship, what is, what is your greatest fear? I said, my greatest fear is that if I'm alone, I'll die. I really thought I would die if I was alone. And she said, you're probably going to have to face that fear before you can ever be healthy. We're going to get you through the steps and then we'll see what happens, you know. And so I kept working the steps. I did an inventory. I tried to look at my part in the relationships that I had. I did a fifth step with my sponsor. She didn't go screaming out of the room with her hair on fire. <laughs> she didn't look at me every, any differently and I watched, okay. <laughs> I watched at every turn. And, uh, you know... Finally, as I began to get a God that worked for me, my life began to change. I might not have been able to see it in time. I'm, I'm so used to trying to live one day at a time now. I went into program in May of 17th of 1989. So May was 22 years I celebrated, which is by the grace of God for sure, you know, that I've done anything this long. But I can't remember things in the way that they happen, in the dates or chronologically, because I'm, I'm here with you right now. That's where I'm at, you know. And uh, anyway, so got out of that relationship. Working through the steps, you know, five, six, seven, get down through there, looking at my character defects, want to have God take them, make a list of people that I've harmed, get to the point of making, looking, I 
can't figure out what my part is in my relationship with my father. And I definitely have resentment. After several months, I realized that I was judging my father for judging me. And it took me a long time to get to the point where I'm making amends, but I wrote a letter, kept praying about it, wrote a letter, sent it, and the letter came back, returned to sender. I was like, okay. So I go to my sponsor. I go, what do I do? She goes, well, you tried. Let's just wait a little bit and see what happens. God will show you what to do. So about, you know, maybe a year later, my family told me that he didn't get the letter, so I sent the letter back. And in that letter, I thanked my father for all the wonderful things that he did in raising me. Because he taught me so many awesome things that made me who I am today. And I, I kept looking at the things that I didn't like instead of the things that were good, you know. How many girls could knock the head off a match at 100 yards, you know. I mean, not a lot, you know. Teaching us how to chew red man when I'm seven years old. I don't do that anymore, but hey, I liked it, you know. I can fix things. Something will be broke. He would say, what's the deal? I would tell him. He would tell me what tool to use. And he'd say, okay, you go fix it and come back and tell me what happened. I know how to figure things out today, you know. And I'm grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that, you know. And uh, so I made amends to my mom. After my parents divorced, I really didn't have anything to do with my mother. Because I, I think what it was is I didn't know how to go to her. She, my mother, if there's an angel that walks on this planet, it's my mother. She's the sweetest, sweetest person in the world. And I think I couldn't go to her house with her being so sweet and, and, and open my heart up to let it in and then go home to live with what I was. I just couldn't do that. It was too painful. So I just kind of shut her out as politely as I could for a southern girl, you know. But when I got in the program, I didn't tell my family for a long time that I had been in the treatment. But I called my mom and I said, I want to have a relationship with you. And here's the truth about what's happened. And if it's not, if you're not okay with that, if we can't have a relationship where we talk about things and maybe get mad sometimes at each other and work it out, I, I can't. It has to be genuine. It has to be real or I can't do it because I have to live by these steps. And she said that, that we could do that. And it was such a blessing. And it's still such a blessing in my life today. So... I continued to work the steps and um, clean up things in my life. And I got this bright idea that I would learn how to date healthy. And I called my, I got a plan, okay? <laughs> I, I developed a plan. <laughs> so I called my sponsor and I said, I got a plan. She goes, oh, let me hear it, you know. <laughs> I'm certain that I was a good source of humor for her on many occasions. And I said, well, you know, 30, 60, 90, the whole thing AA's got going on. You know, I said, I've decided that if I meet someone I like, I won't kiss them for 30 days. And if I really dig them, I won't have sex for 90 days. And she fell off her chair laughing at that. <laughs> Not how I do things. But see, I realized I had been putting the cart before the horse for like my whole life. I would have sex later and make a marriage out of it. And six months later, I'd wake up and hate your guts and didn't know what went wrong, you know. Well... So I started like getting to know people and I don't know much about intimacy and, and intimacy is not just physical intimacy. I've learned that here in this program. I mean, it's getting to know who you are on the inside, you know, and uh, seeing who you are. Are you someone that I like? Are you someone that we have co- even for friends? We're intimate as friends. You know, could, could we be friends? Do we share commonalities? Do you like to fish? Do you like to hunt? Do you like football? What is it? You know, um, and so I began to like learn to go to coffee with people. <laughs> what a concept, you know. And and to be friends with people and recognize my sponsor had me write out this list of characteristic characteristics that I had to have in a partner and characteristics that I absolutely could not have in a partner. And so I would go home at night sometimes and look at my little list, you know, <laughs> did they meet those? And uh, a lot of you know what I found out early on when I got my plan, I would meet girls. And when I told them my plan, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. <laughs> go figure. 
they have a saying down south. It's called water seeks its own level. Y'all know what that means? <laughs> I was finding where I was, right? I was just like that homing pigeon thing, right? You know, when I got healthier, I began to be attracted to a different type of person. And it's amazing because the type of people that I'm attracted to today, I would not even have recognized 22 years ago. Wouldn't have recognized them. I thought people that, it, when I first came in, there were people sitting around, they were quiet, they were still. I thought they were boring. I didn't know they were serene. You know? I mean, like, again, a distorted perception, right? So I kept working the steps, continue to take personal inventory. I'm wrong, promptly admitted it. I've learned to do that. I've learned to do that. It's so much easier to clean things up in this moment, you know? Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. It took me a little while to get that part. Excuse me, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us. us. Excuse me. But I got there. And I'm so grateful for that part in the step. Because it always keeps me focused today. It doesn't matter what the result is. Really what I want more than anything in all of my cells of my being is to do God's will in my life. Whatever that looks like today, I want to do it. Because I won't be all of who I can genuinely be if I'm not seeking God's will. That's what I want today. And then the twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening. As the result of these steps. Isn't that beautiful? The whole reason we work this thing is to get a spiritual awakening. I had no idea what that meant when I got here. So it's a really beautiful thing, you know. And then we can carry the message to others and practice principles. When I was, uh, I won't take you through the whole series of how I got to Phoenix, Arizona. But I went to a conference. I met an alcoholic who was speaking from Phoenix. We had a moment of magic in a hotel. Like, I don't know, a total God thing happened, really. And six months later, I'm living down in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, and I've been here for nine and a half years now. And when I got down here, I got plugged in. I went to program. When I lived, I have to back up for a minute. There's something I need to tell you. When I went to, was in Southern California, like the first 11 years of my program, I, w- I went to mostly gay and lesbian meetings because I could. They're everywhere. When I moved to Boulder, Colorado, they don't have those there. And so I was going to have to go to mainstream meetings. Well, I still had this part of me that was really scared about people finding out all of who I was, even though I've been told that the only only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. I still had some fear. My own father kicked me to the curb, you know. And so I found a meeting in Boulder that I was going to all the time, and I thought, well, I just got to share I got to see where the rubber hits the road and I got to see what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Because I'm going to die. If I don't go, I'm going to die. And so I, I signed up to do a speaker meeting one time. And, and the people that I had already gotten to know, I didn't change any pronouns. I told my story and they just came up and loved me with open arms. And it was so beautiful. Some of my heart got healed so deeply living in Boulder with people just embracing me for who I was. Because I'm an Al-Anon. Nothing else matters. It's all an outside issue after that. You know, um, <clears throat> when I moved down here. One of my very best friends in the program that I would probably never have been friends with if it hadn't been for Alan Lawrence. He was a middle-aged Christian Republican, whatever. I mean, like totally opposite from me, you know. And all those things are wonderful about him. I love this man. Please don't misinterpret me. But we would not have mixed if it hadn't been for Alan Lawrence. He, I was going to drive my, U, my U-Haul down here <laughs> and, uh, in a day because that's what I do. I'm an extremist like an alcoholic. We'll just go to Phoenix in a day, you know. And uh, he said, well, why don't I go with you? And I'm like, why? And he's like... Because I don't want you going by yourself. And I was like, oh, my God, how beautiful is that? We put his motorcycle in, packed my stuff around it, and he came with me. You know, I mean, God has given me the family members in spirit in this program that I needed. Part of that is what allowed me a couple years ago. 
hiking on North Mountain one morning, and I think, you know, I've been sending birthday cards and Christmas cards to my dad. And I finally, it finally got to that point, and I realized I wanted to be a good daughter. Regardless of how he treated me, that didn't have to dictate my behavior. And so I started sending birthday cards and Christmas cards. And I did that for like two or three years. And I went to the post office one day around my birthday, and I got a, car, a birthday card from my father. And I hadn't heard from him in like 15 years. And that was so beautiful. I was like a puddle, you know, <laughs> totally. And he said, Dear Snookum, that's what he called me when I was a kid, my, you know, a little nickname for me. And, and he said, I've always loved you. And I thought when I read that, you know, he means that. He loves me the way that he can. He just can't do anything differently, you know. And so I kept sending the, you know, I kept sending cards and stuff. And then, you know, I have to be careful when I pray for God's will because it, it looks really different sometimes. <laughs> and and uh, I'm hiking one day. I'm going to try to start wrapping this up here. I'm hiking one day on North Mountain, and I'm thinking, you know, Daddy's getting old. And they're telling me that his health is starting to decline. I'm like, God, you don't want to wait till he's dead, Dodo, to go to his funeral. That won't be very productive at all, you know. And so so I decided maybe I need to go. I went home, and I said, Lori, I think I need to go see my dad. She goes, yeah, I think you probably do. And I'm like, dang, you know. Uh, (laughs) And so I called my dad up and asked him if I could come see him. And, like, November will be two years ago, I think. I went to Mississippi, and I drove to see my dad, and I hadn't seen that man for 18 years. And I sat across from him at a Cracker Barrel, and for the first time in my entire life, what he thought didn't matter to me about who I was, because I had a higher power that loved me as a child of God for just who I was today. And I was sitting there, and I thought, I I loved him too. With, with the limitations that are even on our relationship today, I love him too. Because one day he'll be gone and I'll have us my memories, you know. And at one point I said, it's good to see you. He goes, yeah, you thought you better come before I die. I go, yeah, that's pretty much it, you know. <laughs> but I call him today. We don't talk for a long time, but we talk because five minutes is like an hour to him, you know. And I'm good with that. And it's football season, so we'll get to talk a lot right now. But... Um, you know, these kinds of things wouldn't have happened if I hadn't continued to come back. You know, I, I, uh, I work, this program is my life. I took it seriously, the 12 steps of to try to carry the message to others and practice the principles and all our affairs and the whole continuing with the spiritual awakening part. You know, I can't give it away if I don't have it. I have to pray and meditate every day, and now I have to do rotator cuff exercises too because my shoulders are all messed up. But, you know, <laughs> it's okay. We learn, right, how to take care of ourselves. It's important to me to have a contact with God. I do a lot of service. I sponsor a lot of people, take people through the steps, through the traditions. You know, in our home group, we practice the traditions. It's very important to us. Our home group is tight, you know. I mean, we have 35, 40 people. We go for fellowship every week. Last week, there were like 20-something people went for fellowship afterwards. That's my family, you know. We go through hard times together. We go through good times together. They told me when I got here, they said, Carrie, we're not going to tell you it's going to be okay we're going to tell you, you'll be okay. Because you will find the tools here. You will find that there's a higher power that will solve your problem if you seek him. All you got to do is seek. Just, you just got to look. And I got to continue to try to grow my spiritual life because life continues to happen. I've been here 22 years, but life still throws some serious curveballs sometimes, you know. We're not told it's going to be easy. We're just told that we can get through it. And, we, and it's a we thing, right? First word, we. We don't have to do it alone anymore. 
I'm so grateful to have found this program. I don't know what I would have done. It doesn't matter anymore because I have it now, you know. And, and I mean, here I can be from Williams. I can be from Glendale. I can be from everywhere, right? And, and we're all here together. Uh, I'm so grateful to have found so many wonderful people in the fellowship that I love so dearly. So many people I see here today that I love so very much and share parts of lives, my life with you and you with me and we can be anonymous and you know just let god keep flowing through us as we try to carry this message and recover together one day at a time thank you so much for being here today and thank you for sharing my recovery